You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. If you have a Bible, turn to Proverbs chapter 18. My name is Jamin. If you're new to Citizens, welcome. It's a joy that you chose uh, to worship with us this morning. If you're watching online, listening online, thank you uh, for joining us wherever you are. Uh, Proverbs 18 is one proverb that we'll be in. We'll be in a handful as we kind of take this next step in our wisdom series together. Uh, There's a question that Carrie and I will ask each other every so often. Carrie's my wife. And the question is this, if our wedding was today, in what ways would it be different uh, than it was when we got married? Like if the ceremony and the reception, if we did all that today, uh, what things would change. Um, We met in the summer of 2005, and what happened was I saw her, and I immediately prayed to God. I said, God, uh, my only chance with this woman is if she has really low standards. And praise God, she did. And um, we started dating and dated for a few years and then married in July of 2008. So that was 14 years ago, and we have changed in those 14 years, a a lot of us, a lot about us has changed. And so we just asked the question, in light of those changes, if we were doing our wedding all over again, what would we change now? And so we talk about things like the music at the reception, our interests in music have changed. So we'd probably do that differently. We talk about in the ceremony, you know, there's people that we know now that we didn't know then. So we would definitely have Bleeker and Molly sing at our ceremony because we know them now and they're the best. Uh, Carrie will say that she would do the wedding registration all over again. She would register for different kinds of things. Like there are things that we opened that day that we have not seen in over 14 years. And so uh, the, the bridal party would probably change. Carrie has all these friends. And instead of choosing between them, we would just have all of them. And I would find some guys to stand in. And so we would do things differently than we did then. Um, now, when we have that conversation, there are a few things that we never bring up. Like, what would you change now that that was true then? We never say something like, you know, I could do without the vows, honestly. We never bring up things like, we talked about God a lot, and I feel like we would dial that back if we got married again. We wouldn't read as much scripture than we did. There are things that don't fall in the what would we change category, and because it's because we're Christians. We love the Lord. We believe uh, that there are fixed truths about marriage that make marriage, marriage. They are themselves unchanging. What makes a wedding a wedding is that a marriage is made. And what makes a marriage is defined by God because God's the one who who made marriage. And so his word teaches us about what marriage is according to him. We are in a series on wisdom and we are in the weeks in that series that we've been pointing to for some time now. And uh, those are the weeks where we hit marriage and wisdom in a different topic. We'll talk about uh, wisdom topically as it applies to different subjects. And so the last couple of weeks, that was wisdom and family of origin. And we'll spend the next three weeks on wisdom and marriage, mostly in the book of Proverbs, because that's where we are in our wisdom series. And we're asking, what does Proverbs teach us about marriage? What wisdom is there about marriage in the book of Proverbs? In other words, what unchanging truths does it reveal about what marriage is and, and what it's not? Um, Proverbs talks a lot about marriage and we need to do a little bit of work. This might feel tangential. It's really important. Uh, we need to do a little bit of work understanding, uh, what is said about marriage in the book of Proverbs because you get verses like this in Proverbs two, it'll be on the screen behind me verses 16 through 19. 
So you will be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words, who forsakes the companion of her youth, forgets the covenant of her God, for her house sinks down to death and her paths to the departed. None who go to her come back, nor do they regain the paths of life. That's a happy marriage verse, isn't it? Here's what's going on. A lot of the wisdom that we find in Proverbs about marriage, it comes to us through the way that Proverbs uses marriage primarily as a metaphor for the relationship to wisdom and the relationship to folly. So when Proverbs talks about marriage, it's almost always talking about more than marriage. And it's often using the marriage relationship that we all at least have some sort of conception of. And it's using that as a metaphor to get us to consider this question. Have you married wisdom or have you married foolishness? And if you're married, that's not talking about your spouse. You hear that in the passage we read, the forbidden woman is a character that you hear a lot about in Proverbs. Chapters five, six, and seven are almost entirely about her. And she it typifies something. She represents foolishness. She is personified, uh, foolishness personified as a seductress. And so just like wisdom is personified as a virtuous woman, like in Proverbs 31, that's important. The reason why all this is important is because without that framework, we could easily read chapters like five, six, and seven, or we could read verses like the one that we just read and think the warning is about adultery. And while that is something to be warned about, in reality, it's bigger than that. It's around the destruction and pain of cheating on wisdom, of making folly your mistress. And you can do that whether you're married or not. In some ways, this whole series The whole book of Proverbs is an invitation to you and to me uh, to exist in a faithful relationship with wisdom, to be uh, faithful, to practice fidelity to wisdom the way a faithful husband would to a wife or the way a faithful wife would to a husband, to wed wisdom. So know this, that when we're talking about marriage, we are almost always in verses that are talking about more than marriage. But what the book says about marriage, even when it's using it as a metaphor, is still true, it's still wise. It helps us understand God's design for marriage, God's desire for marriage. So I just wanna take all that wisdom and I wanna put it into a sentence that'll take us three weeks to unpack. Um, The 9 a.m. laughed at that and it wasn't a joke and that kind of hurt my feelings. Um, (laughs) According to Proverbs, marriage is a God-given, covenant-keeping, intimate friendship. The wisdom we get about marriage from the book of Proverbs and other places in the Bible that we'll go to is that it's a God-given, covenant-keeping, intimate friendship. We'll spend three weeks here. This morning will be on marriage being God-given. It's from God. Next week, it's covenant-keeping. That's a promise that points to a bigger promise. And then in two weeks, marriage is an intimate friendship. It's a husband and a wife who are intimate best friends. Marriage is God-given, covenant-keeping, intimate friendship. All morning, we'll unpack what it means that marriage is God-given. Let's consider a few Proverbs together to begin. Proverbs 18, 22. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. God's favor is experienced in marriage. A wife is a good thing. Marriage is a good thing. Says who? God. Proverbs 19, 14. House and wealth are inherited from fathers, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. You probably notice that both passages uh, talk about wives, and it would be easy to wonder what about the husband. Remember, uh, a lot of Proverbs is a conversation from a father to a son, so there's some things that are already assumed about the guy. 
the book is about fearing the Lord, pursuing wisdom. The guy is prudent, or he's trying to be. He has the kind of character that wants to create a godly, healthy marriage where both husband and wife flourish. So uh, he's a prudent husband who finds a prudent wife, and together they make a prudent marriage. Prudent means wise, and so it's a wise marriage is from who? The Lord. In the passage we read in chapter two, the forbidden woman folly forgets the covenant of her God, it says. The truth about marriage that we find in the metaphor is the marriage relationship is tied to relationship with God. Okay, from all different sides, in a lot of different words, what these passages affirm is that marriage is from God. He calls it good. He makes wise marriages. His covenant is tied, or the marriage covenant is tied to the covenant that he's made with his people. And so all of it stands on the truth that we find in the very first pages of the Bible in Genesis 1 and 2. It's this, God made marriage. Marriage is God-given. What's the first thing that God said was not good? He makes sky and space, that's good. Ocean and land, that's good. Plants and animals, that's good. And then he sees an all-alone Adam and says, that's not good. It's not good for man to be alone. That guy needs help. So God makes Eve and brings Eve to Adam and brings Adam to Eve so that they would exist in a relationship of mutual love and mutual sacrifice and intimacy and devotion. God made marriage. So hear me, any, there's so much to say about marriage. There's so much that will be left unsaid, even in our three weeks together. But the first thing we have to say, the starting place for us as Christians of any understanding of marriage is its source. And God's the source of marriage. God made marriage. It's from him. I was thinking about how to conceptualize this. And I thought of a a trip that we took last fall to Jackson Hole, Wyoming. It's one of the most beautiful places I've ever been. Uh, And and particularly, I thought of a a picture that maybe you've seen of Jackson Hole um, it's, uh, it's kind of become a famous image to represent Jackson. It's a picture of a barn, and the barn is called the T.A. Moulton Barn. It's also called the Mormon Barn because it's on Mormon Road there in the valley, and we have a picture of it to show. Yeah, there it is. Um, it was built, the barn was built in the early 1900s, and it's impressive because it's still standing today. They've done some renovations. Um, I don't know how you figure this out, but here's what's true about this barn behind me. It is the most photographed barn in the world. Didn't you wake up wondering about that? You're like, you know, of all the barns out there, I wonder which one people take pictures of most. Okay, I have a question. Why is this the most photographed barn in the world? What's special about it? The mountains behind it, right? If you take that barn and put it in Sherman, Texas, no one's taking a picture of it, right? Nobody cares as much. No offense to Sherman, I'm sure it's great. Lots of barns there, I bet. You can buy this picture behind me and you can put this picture on canvas and you can hang it up in your home and people do that. Why? Because of what's behind the barn. Uh, Behind it, it's the Teton Mountain Range. It's one of the most beautiful portions of the entire Rocky Mountain Range. They erupt out of the ground uh, almost year round or at least the top of it's covered in snow. I've not traveled a lot, not been to many places, but this is the most beautiful thing I have ever seen in person. And so there's something that's historic, maybe even special about the barn being there, but the barn is picture worthy. It's stunning. It's beautiful because of what's behind it. There are these beautiful mountains behind it that stand over it, that are present with it. And so what you'll almost never find is you'll never find a picture of just the barn. 
It's always this kind of angle where the big, beautiful mountains in the background are always in view, always above it, always present in it. Okay, marriage is like that. There is a big, beautiful God behind marriage. There's a big, beautiful God behind and above and present in marriage. And our view is only right and only true when we see marriage in view of the big, beautiful God who gave it, who made it, who defines it, who beautifies it, and who calls it good. Our understanding has to be shaped by God's glorious presence that's behind marriage. If you remove the mountains in the picture, it's just a barn. If you remove God from marriage, you are left with something less than what God intends. It's why, friends, our culture is struggling so much with marriage, so struggling to see clearly, to flourish, because we have largely removed it from the reality of the beautiful God who is behind it and over it and present with it. I want to tease that out. I think where this brings clarity for us, where remembering that marriage is God-given, where believing there's a big, beautiful God behind marriage, what it helps do is it helps bring clarity to our view of marriage in three ways. It does three things. This will be our outline for the rest of our time. It corrects an idolized view of marriage. It confronts a cynical view of marriage. And it comforts a wounded view of marriage. Marriage is God-given. There's a beautiful God behind it. It's from him. And remembering that corrects an idolized view. It confronts a cynical view. And it comforts a wounded view. We'll start with the idolized view. Uh, Proverbs 18, 22. Uh, Kim read for us these two verses that are back to back. And it's really important. 18, 22 says, he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. So finding a wife is a good thing. Getting married is a good thing. You experience some of God's goodness and favor in marriage. But listen to Proverbs 8.35. It's strikingly similar to 18.22. And comparing the two helps us get some clarity. 8.35 says, whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. Remember who's speaking in chapter 8. It's wisdom. So it's whoever finds wisdom finds life. 18.22, whoever finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. 8.35, whoever finds wisdom finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. Marriage is spoken of really highly. Put in this context, next to wisdom itself, you experience God's favor. But what the idolized view of marriage, the view that loses sight of the beautiful God behind marriage, it swaps the words in the verses and it says something like this, whoever finds a wife finds life. Uh, whoever finds a husband finds life. Whoever finds marriage finds life. In other words, I'm not really living until I get married. Uh, I'm not really living until I get my marriage fixed. I'm not really living until I have the kind of marriage that I've always dreamed of. So just to exhaust our illustration, which I'm always okay to do, the idolized view of marriage treats marriage like it's the mountains. It treats it like it's the most beautiful thing in the picture, in the life. And there are a host of problems when we do that. There are a host of problems that come out of the idolized view of marriage. I want to name two. The idolized view of marriage believes that the relationship I most need in life is a spouse, which is to say, for some of us, my greatest problem is singleness, or it's to say for others, my greatest problem is not having the spouse I really wanted. It's not true. 
The relation, I'm going to give you a chance to amen. The relationship we most need in life is a savior. You missed it. Who reconciles us to God, right? Who loves us and invites us to find life. Jesus invites us to find life, not in someone else, but to find life in him. So the relationship we most need is with the person of wisdom, Jesus. Can I remind us of something? Jesus was single, never married, and lived the fullest life in human history. When we idolize marriage, and we can especially do this in a church context like ours, when we idolize marriage, we set a standard for living well that Jesus himself would not have passed, that he himself would not have lived up to. We make singleness feel like a problem. We make marriage feel like it's the goal. And the goal of life is neither marriage nor singleness. The goal is loving and becoming like Jesus because he first loved us by meeting our great need, not for a spouse, but for a savior. If you are single, friend, maybe single and one day you'll be married. Maybe you're like some of my heroes in the church who are, who've committed to a life of single celibacy out of a love for Jesus. Hear me, there, if that's you, there is a beautiful God behind your life. There's a beautiful God behind your life. And he beautifies your singleness just as much as he beautifies a marriage because life is not found in our marital status. Life is found in a beautiful God. Marriage is good Marriage is not God. Whoever finds Jesus finds life. When marriage is idolized, we believe the relationship we most need is a spouse. The second one is this. When it's idolized, for those of us who are married, we bring expectations into marriage that cannot be met by a spouse, can't possibly be met by a spouse. He who finds a wife finds a good thing, not he who finds a wife finds a God thing. And when we, hear me, when we deify marriage, we always demonize our spouse, always. Not for being a bad spouse, but for being a bad God. A regular conversation us married people need to have, a question we need to ask, especially in conflict, especially when marriage is hard or disappointing. Here's the question. Am I trying to find in my spouse what I can only find in God? We try and find meaning often from our spouse that we can only find in God. So I'm uh, insecure about how valuable I am. I'm insecure about how lovable I am. I'm insecure about how attractive I am. I'm insecure about how worthy of respect I am. I know. I'll find a person riddled with all their own insecurities who can make all that go away, right? And give meaning to my life. And listen, I do think, we'll talk about this in two weeks, I do think that one of the best ways that spouses can love one another is by being a shame-silencing voice in the life of your spouse. It's a gift when you have that telling them they matter, telling them that you're proud to be their husband, you're proud to be their wife, giving thanks for the ways that God has gifted them. Goodness, your voice in the life of your spouse, if you're married, it has power to tear down. It has power to build up, build up, always build up. But in all of that, we're not the source of that. Jesus is. We're not what's most needed in that. Jesus is. And if we look to our spouse as the primary person who overcomes our shame and gives our life meaning, we give our spouse a job that they are unqualified for, woefully unqualified for. Like the last two weeks, just as an example, uh, we're on wisdom and family of origin. And one of the reasons that work is so important, particularly for married couples to do, is because we often can expect of our current home to heal the wounds from our childhood home. For the husband to be the man that dad never was for the wife to create the kind of home that mom never did. And what we're doing in that moment is we are expecting a kind of God-sized healing to come from a human-sized spouse. 
I think we walk through one another. One of the beautiful parts of marriage is when we walk through the painful parts of our lives and stories together. But the spouse is a helper. God is the healer. And when we confuse those two, we just end up taking our pain out on one another. Marriage is God-given. There is a big, beautiful God behind marriage. And our love for one another is at its best when we love God most. When we expect God to be God and we expect a spouse to be a spouse, a spouse is a good thing, not a God thing. Uh, there's a big, beautiful God behind and above and present in marriage, and that helps correct an idolized view of marriage. It also helps confront a cynical view of marriage. We'll spend some time here. This week, I read an article in The Atlantic about marriage. It was under a, um, a group of articles that were labeled The Case Against Marriage. The title of this article was What You Lose When You Gain a Spouse. And the article was mostly interacting with um, some research done by a sociologist out of Boston University. And the research showed that marriage tends to weaken other social ties. When you get married, you become, uh, you're not as good of a child. When you get married, you're not as good of a friend. When you get married, you don't pay attention to the needs of the community as much. And hence the title, What You Lose When You Gain a Spouse. But what really caught my attention was the image that headlined the article. It was a really, it's a really cynical image about marriage. I wanna show it to you. What do you see? Oh, marriage is such a burden. The rings in marriage are symbols of the promise that the husband and wife made. And behind me, that bride and that groom, they are buckling under the weight of the promise, right? It's crushing them. They need help. Uh, he's already bald. Neither of them have hands. It's a mess, right? <laughs> and that is a pervasive cultural idea. Marriage is a burden. It's a weight. It, it stifles freedom. It's the old ball and chain. What do they call it when you marry? You settle down, because the adventure's over. Uh, you're ready to trade in the sports car for the minivan, and, and surrounding all of that is this connotation that marriage is just a burden. It just weighs you down. You give more than you get. You lose more than you gain. It's cynical. Carrie and I have been married for a few months, and, and, and I was catching up with some friends, and I knew some of them better than I knew others, and someone asked, hey, how's marriage going? We were like two or three months in. And at the time, it was going really well. And I said, you know, it's been great. There's some things that are challenging, but, you know, we really love each, like, we really love each other. And there was a guy there who'd been married for several years, and he, when I said that, he scoffed. And he said, well, that won't last long. That's just the first few months, and then it wears off. And I thought, man, thank you. <laughs> I don't know if you've done one of those spiritual gift tests, but you've got the gift of encouragement. Like, it's coming out of you really strong. If you shared that with your wife, I bet she would just be so <laughs> flattered. Um, but that, that is this pervasive view, right? This really common experience. If it's good, it's only good early on. And then the rings weigh you down. You just buckle under your promises. Think about what's reflected in the movies we watch and the shows that we watch. Lots and lots of emphasis on when a couple first meets. It's so exciting, so romantic. On their first date, first time they sleep together. Not a lot of movies about the couple in their 50s who are still committed to date night and enjoying it. Why? Because the assumption is, and honestly, the experience is that love dies, and that's what happens. And what the cynical view of marriage says is that's what marriage is destined for. Please hear me. That comes from a culture 
that we exist in, uh, the air that we breathe, it has a very cheap view of love. And here's how it works. We have this idealized vision of romance, this Disney fairy tale expectation of what love's gonna feel like and what it's gonna be like. And there's another human who can fill all the empty places in our soul. And then right next to that in our culture, we have this disdain for any commitment, a disdain for anything that could be restrictive to what I want, what could tie me down. I want my life to be free to be me. And what that amounts to, friends, is that amounts to a culture that wants the experience of falling in love without the cost of actually loving someone. And marriages only thrive in self-sacrificing, other-centered, God-beautified relationships. And the lie around us, please hear me, this is a devastating lie. Here's the lie. If it's really love, then it won't take work. And so the moment it feels like work, the conclusion is, this isn't working. It must not be working. These rings feel so heavy. I know that marriage can be burdensome. I get that. Maybe you're married and, and that's your experience now. You see the couple buckling under the rings and you think, that's us. This is more work than I ever thought it, it could be and, and we're in a bind and, and if it takes this much work, it must mean that it's not working and maybe we're not right for each other. Maybe we fell out of love. These promises are crushing us. Would you hear me, my friend? There is a big, beautiful God behind your marriage. There's a beautiful God behind your marriage, above your marriage, present in your marriage and your marriage is from him. And it's when, goodness, it's when your marriage takes work. It's when it feels like it's not working that God wants to work in you. He wants to work in your marriage. He wants to work in your heart. And so if you feel like you're under the weight of a heavy marriage, you feel like you're drifting apart, you feel like you don't even know each other anymore, I don't know enough to know all the answers, but I know this. It is in that kind of place that our beautiful God can do beautiful work. One of the reasons... God gives marriage is to bring change in us through marriage. What we'll see next week is that God invites married people into a covenant, that their promise to each other serves as a picture of God's promise to his people, which is a process of changing together, of loving one another as God loves us. There's another lie out there that says this, if you love me, you won't try to change me. And what God would say is where love is, there's always change. That's what love does. It accepts you where you are, and then it makes you who you're always meant to be. And one of the gifts of marriage, whether we know it or not, what we've signed up for if we're married, is that God is going to work on us through our marriage, through the joy, through the conflict, through the intimacy, through the disappointment. It's like if God is a sculptor, marriage is his chisel, and he is shaping you by chipping away at the parts of you that don't look like Jesus. And so maybe, friend, the weight of marriage is not the sign that it's not working, but it's the sign that God is working, and he's bringing about something good. And God's people, hear me, God's people do not view that cynically. Oh, the love must have died. We step outside, we lift our eyes to a beautiful God, behind even a difficult marriage, and we believe this, God is still there, and he is still working, and he is still beautiful, and he can bring beauty to this, even this. Believing marriage is God-given, it means that in marriage, I don't expect to get a perfect marriage. It means that in marriage, I expect to get more of God. Marriage is God-given. It helps correct an idolized view. It helps confront a cynical view. And at last, it helps comfort a wounded view. Now, around this last point, I have a specific kind of person in mind, and we'll get there. 
but it would be easy with just the verses that we've read to think that Proverbs has this, um, I don't know, over-optimistic view of marriage. He who finds a wife finds a good thing. A prudent marriage is from the Lord. You're like, okay, that sounds great, but when I think of marriage, that's not the experience that comes to mind. That's not what, what words come to mind. Well, hear me. Proverbs makes space for that too. Proverbs 6.32, he who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. It's part of the book where marriage is used as a metaphor and infidelity is highlighted to tell all of us, don't cheat on wisdom, folly's an awful mistress. But what it says is true. When infidelity happens in a marriage, it's destructive, it's painful. And that especially happens in this part of our world. Dallas Morning News ran a story last week, I don't know if you saw it, but the headline was Dallas ranks number one for infidelity according to metrics that they got from a couple of different dating websites. So take that for whatever it's worth. Um, But more people in Dallas cheat on their spouse than any other city in the nation. You know what number two was? Fort Worth. DFW is a metroplex full of infidelity. And Proverbs says when that happens, marriage is destructive for everyone around. When you're a child that grows up in a home where that happens, it's destructive for you. Not beyond the grace and healing of Jesus, by any means. He's stronger than that, he's bigger than that, he's beautiful even over that, and that story's in this room, but it's painful nonetheless. And some of you have had a front row seat to that kind of pain. You also find Proverbs like 25, 24, it is better to live in a corner of the housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. You know, I've heard this verse turned into a joke before, but it's not funny. I've seen this proverb embodied in the life of both wives and husbands. There's a kind of marriage where one or both are so fight ready, always prepared to turn the conversation into conflict, super easily offended, and when they're offended, their offense pours out of them. It's better to be in the corner of the attic. It's better to find the most uncomfortable place in the house to live because even there, it's more comfortable than living with someone where you always have to try to avoid a fight or win a fight or lose a fight intentionally just so the fighting can stop. It reminds us of the proverb we learned last spring about the stubborn fool, Proverbs 29, 9, and 11. If a wise man has an argument with a fool, what does the fool do? Rages and laughs. Extreme, dysfunctional emotion, disproportionate to the circumstance. And there's no quiet. A fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds back. And when that fool is married, that house is really noisy. It's filled with foolishness. There's no quiet. They would rather burn the barn down than lose an argument. Why bring all that up? Here's the person I have in mind. So much to say. One of the things I think God would have us say is, it's not supposed to be like that. It's not supposed to be like that. That kind of marriage is blind to the beauty of God behind it, the unfaithfulness and constant conflict and yelling and no quiet. And and so maybe you have never been married and you're not sure if you want to because all you've seen are broken vows and noisy houses. I think about all of our young adults that attend this church. I think about all of our uh, college students that attend this church. And what you could say and what you've thought as I've been talking about marriage is you could say, I've never seen it done well. I've just never seen it done well. And, and, and all I've seen is I've never seen it treated as a gift from God. And because of all that experience, I don't know if I ever want to be a part of one. It's not supposed to be that way. It's not. 
And hear me, you, friend, you are not destined to create that kind of marriage simply because it's all you've ever known. If all you have are shattered examples of marriage, but you also have Jesus, you have enough. You have enough. Not enough to have a perfect marriage, those don't exist, but enough to have one that's beautified by God. So maybe your thoughts towards marriage aren't idolized, they're not even cynical, they're wounded, they're shaped by pain. Would you know this? There's a better way. There's a better way, it's God's way. It's the beautiful way. Okay, we will be here talking about wisdom for a few weeks, wisdom and and marriage. For now, I wanna bring us to a close. There are things that I need to say because of what I've said, just as a pastor. And this is where my heart uh, just felt so much tension and then need and responsibility, knowing some of the stories and then knowing the stories that I don't, that we are uh, talking wisdom and marriage and in doing so, trying to take wise steps. And I'm just really sensitive to the fact that I don't wanna step on anyone in a way that is irresponsible. So let me just pastor a few kinds of people. If you're single, We've said this, hear it again. Marriage is not God. Marriage is good, it's not God. You're not waiting to live. Whoever finds Jesus finds life. And here's, here's what I, I know. Um, sitting through a sermon that's all about marriage can make you feel especially other than. And that is especially true if you're single and you will be for a long time. And if that happened, I'm sorry. The beauty of the gospel is that the marriage that matters most is the one where Jesus is the husband and the church is the bride and every Christian is every bit a part of that whether you're married or not and that includes you. God loves you, the Lord loves you, he sees you. If you are married and you are married and the rings feel heavy and I'm thinking of the couple that feels like they're drifting apart, I'm thinking of the couple that there's not you know, something that is not some sort of devastating, destructive reality to the home, but in the home, in the marriage, it's taking a lot of work right now. Hear me, if that's you, it's worth the work. Goodness, it's worth it. There's a big, beautiful God at work right now. Remember the guy with the gift of encouragement who said the foolish thing to me when I was a few months into marriage? The love won't last. It wears off after a few months. That's not true. It doesn't wear off like the shine of a new toy. Love withers like a garden someone stopped tending. It does not fade because of time. It withers because of neglect. Husband, tend the garden. Wife, tend the garden. Do the work. Love one another. Move towards one another. Apologize to one another. You start. Make time for one another. And I know that requires a lot of conversation and a lot of wisdom, but hear me. I'm just saying your marriage is worth it because your God is beautiful. Don't run from that work. He's trying to change you for your good and for the good of your home. I feel compelled. I think it's risky, but I feel compelled to say this to someone. Look right at me. Don't quit. Don't quit. Husband, don't quit. Wife, don't quit. And if you're in a place where you need help, you need more help than what you have, we've all been there. Get help. Go to home group tonight or whenever you meet and raise your hand and say, we need help. Come to recovery on Wednesday night at 6.30 and say, look, the rings are heavy and you will find people who love you enough to hold you up for a bit. Come down front for prayer after service. Go on a date. Remember your vows. A lot has changed since your wedding, but your promise hasn't and neither has your God. He's faithful and he's beautiful and nothing is too heavy for him. 
Finally, stay with me. For some in the room, this is all just pain. All of it's just painful. Maybe because you acted foolishly and it brought a marriage to the end. Maybe because you're wading through the consequences of that and you feel guilt and shame. Maybe you're on the other side of that. You were sinned against in a way that's egregious. Maybe you're looking back on a marriage that imploded and said, I did everything I could and I couldn't avoid this outcome. Maybe you are in a marriage that's unraveling right now and you feel really confused about all that and you're wondering what your next step is or what role you play in that. Hear me. For the one who's feeling guilt and shame, for the one who's feeling wounded and confused, God loves you. We come at it from different sides, but the answer for both of us is Jesus and his cross because Jesus is behind your sin offering grace and Jesus is behind your pain offering healing. And my ask, my request, my plea this morning is wherever you fall in that, would you just move towards God? Move towards God with your guilt. And maybe that means coming down front and asking for prayer. Maybe that means just saying, I don't even know what my next step is, but I need to take a next step. That means moving towards God with your pain. That means moving towards God with the confusion that you're in. Not assuming that it's all your fault. Not assuming that we've heard everything clearly, but just saying, I refuse to do nothing. Lord, we need you. We love you. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your grace. We are here at Citizens Church in Plano, Texas at the 11 o'clock service in which the most true thing about this moment is you, beautiful God, are behind it. You're over it. You're present with us in it. And we need you. We need you. Some of us need your correction, your sober truth to land on us like a kind of weight that brings us to our knees in repentance. That we would stop acting foolishly, that we would stop trying to center our relationships around us, and that we would lay our life down because a beautiful God is worth it. Some of us need your beauty, God, to come and fall on us like cold water on a thirsty soul. That the confusion that we feel around a marriage that's unraveling would find clarity in the face of our Savior who loves us. What's happening for some God is they know things are in a heavy place, not an awful place, but not in the place that you would have a marriage that has you behind it to be. I just pray, God, by your Spirit, they would act in accordance with your beauty and they would say, I'm gonna apologize first. I'm gonna serve first. I'm gonna move towards her instead of waiting for her to move towards me. I'm gonna move towards him instead of waiting for him to move towards me. Because God's worth it. Jesus, because you're beautiful. And so God, I just pray that you would protect from the kinds of objections that keep us comfortable and keep us stuck. Would you protect from the objection that says today's not the day to ask for help? Would you protect from the objection that says this is all my fault, I need to go clean it up by myself? Would you protect from the objection that says I sinned my way outside of the reach of God's grace? None of it's true. 
Your altar is open. Your hands are open. You can bring change. You love us, God. I pray that all in the room, single, married, divorced, wherever we fall in this, God, I pray that all of us would get a fresh vision of our beautiful God and we would leave today different than the way we came in. Please, God, we need you. We love you. Amen.